If you look up a list of Formula One drivers from Colombia, you'll find there's not a lot of names on it. In fact, there's just two. Roberto Guerrero drove for Ensign in 1982. Years later, Juan Pablo Montoya had a much more successful career, spanning over five seasons, where he won seven Grand Prix for both Williams and McLaren. But there's actually a Colombian driver who predates both of those entries. That driver was scheduled to race the 1981 Brazilian Grand Prix. Unfortunately for him, this driver was unable to complete his goal. But it wasn't because of injuries sustained in a crash or a lack of funding from a team. No, he wasn't allowed to race because of who he knew. Today on Stagger, we're gonna talk about why you don't wanna be Pablo Escobar's favorite driver. Turns of loose coming into the front straight. Tommy changed the entire throttle system last night, the night before a race. Oh, he can't do that. But we wanna thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before. Welcome to Stagger, where we explore motorsports heroes, legends, and myths. Before we get into our story, a couple of notes. Every week I feel like we do all these great interviews and I forget to tell you guys about them before we get into the show. So let me tell you later in this episode, we're gonna talk to Atlantis Motor Group co-founder Ken Gold, who has over 35 years in and around the exotic car industry. As you listen to this episode, you're going to hear us talk about some really cool cars. Ken has an intimate knowledge of some of the cars we're gonna talk about today. In particular, a very special car from this episode, but more on that coming up. Also, as we always like to do, we wanna thank all the new listeners we've gotten yet again this week. The show continues to grow. It's been so rewarding to hear from you as people find out about the show and tell us the stories they want us to talk about. Get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show. You can tweet us at Stagger Podcast. We're also on Instagram at the same handle. And you can email the show, contact at Stagger Podcast, and let us know what you think. And finally, if you are enjoying this show and you use one of the apps that lets you leave a rating, please feel free to do so. It's only going to help more people find this show. My brother Derek Smith always joins me on these journeys through motorsports history. Derek, what comes to your mind when I say the name Pablo Escobar? Well, it intrigues me from my... My time watching ESPN 30 for 30, the two Escobars, and then also the Narcos uh, series on Netflix. But other than that, I don't know much about the real Pablo Escobar. Well, you probably have a decent picture then if you've watched those two properties. Two Escobars, by the way, you're right, is a stunning, yeah. excellent, for anybody who's not seen that, that is, uh, just watch it. I don't even want to say any more about it. Just, yeah, it's a soccer story. It's a life story. It's an everything story. It's, it's great. So Pablo Escobar, uh, for those who don't know is one of the people that the term narco terrorist was coined for narco terrorist would be someone who uses money and power achieved by selling drugs to influence elections and political outcomes of a country, uh, and hold people, under kind of their rule through violence and other means. So that's the thing to keep in mind with Pablo Escobar and what we're talking about today. This is not meant to glorify him in any way. Um, He is obviously a, he's a terrorist. I mean, that's really what these guys were. If you look at how he controlled people and threatened to kill them if they did anything wrong and you know, that that's who this guy is. So the part of this story that we're focusing on is how it came to be that everyone kind of looked the other way with Pablo Escobar all the way up to formula one. Like it almost got to that point where he was, where he was entering a driver in formula one and, 
and very well could have done it. Also, this episode, if you are a Porsche fan, if you like Formula One, if you like IROC, if you <laughs> watch Narcos, I think there's a lot in this episode for you. So let's dive on in and talk about it. So at the height yeah. of his power, Pablo Escobar was raking in more than $70 million per day smuggling cocaine from South America to the U.S. At one point, he and his Medellin cartel were responsible for 80% of the cocaine brought across the border. Think about that. 80% of the cocaine that came into the U.S. at the height of his power was all coming from one guy's operation. Yeah. So, well, And think about this. This is where I actually have a little bit of insight from watching a couple of these shows and that, that have some information, is that he was not trusting of the Mexican cartel. So he did not use the Mexican cartel to funnel the drugs in like like the Cali cartel did in the other part of Colombia. So he went through only his people. So whether that be planes and boats and whatever. And did they did you ever hear about how they had to ship the money back to no. get it back? How, to did, how did they ship the money back? They, he had warehouses and 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 employees back in the States that would fill and line mattresses. And all sorts of cabinetry everything they could and then cash would be filled with that so that cash would then be able to go back and go clear customs in Colombia, and then they would have safe houses where they would store those mattresses and things like that and whenever they needed money they had the cash there it was physical cash 70 million dollars a day physical cash coming I... into Colombia. yeah so there's a whole network of smuggling you thought drugs were smuggling like hard, it was hard to smuggle. Oh, the drugs yeah, in. that's always the it thing. was even probably harder to smuggle the cash back. Yeah, well, that's definitely the thing that I think most people don't realize about these cartels is that or any type of I mean, you saw this in Breaking Bad. If you watch that, not that that's a documentary by any stretch, but the problem always is when you get all this money through ill-gotten gain, what do you do with it? You got to make it disappear. And you as, buy as expensive sports cars. Well, that's one of the things, you know, we've talked about this before. Look at the moonshiners back in the hills of the Carolinas and Georgia and all that. I mean, that's what they would do. They, they'd get this money. They didn't have anywhere to really put it. Can't just go to the bank and be like, here's my $50,000 I just got. So you can put all that money into cars and people don't exactly know how much you spent on your car. You can win money, legitimate money with those cars. You know, you can do other things with those cars. You could sell those cars. You can whatever. So cars and Money from ill-gotten gains seem to go together, and that story is very similar for Pablo Escobar as well. Um, so he did decide to go racing, but not... You would think, again, this guy's making all this money. Now, this was a little before he got really, you know, the height of his power, but he decided to start racing in Colombia. And the thing mm -hmm. to do in Colombia at the time was not... They didn't have, like, NASCAR races, obviously. They didn't have formula cars, the races that he entered were the Copa Renault 4. The Renault 4 was like, if you look at an old, if you ever seen an old school Mini, not like the ones that are currently made, but a Mini from, a Mini Cooper from, you know, the old back in the day. Those mm. cars are super tiny. And that's kind of what these Renault cars look like. But it only had 24 horsepower. So they were known for being kind of rugged. Really? They could get over the terrain. Yeah, someone... I think actually took one and raced it in a, like a, like a rally, like a, I don't know if it was Dakar or not, like in Africa, but it was a, a big, you know, overland rally where they had to go through different things. So these, these cars were just kind of known for like getting the job done. They weren't very sexy or anything else. They weren't very fast, but 
they kind of were durable and you could race them. In fact, in Narcos, mm. there's a scene where he is racing a guy in a little tiny car, and that is a Renault 4. So they mm. got that part right in uh, in Narcos. This is in 1976. He founded the Medellin Cartel. Uh, he had established the first smuggling routes for cocaine in the U.S. By that point, by May of 76, he and several of his henchmen were arrested with a large load of cocaine in their possession he had attempted to bribe the judge in that case to get the charges dropped, but that didn't work. So he ordered the arresting officers murdered. Uh, soon after that, all the charges were dropped. And you can kind of see this is yeah. where he started to really become this person that's just like, well, he's not just a drug dealer. He's a murderer. He's everything. He's horrible. He's untouchable is what it became. Well, yeah, because if you were then what happens to you? He didn't. He was, Think about that. He didn't go after the judge. He went after the arresting officers. So then the next couple guys that pull up on his henchmen, it's like, do you want to arrest these guys? I don't. <laughs> Look what happened to the last guys. So that's who he was in 1976. And what I told you was Monday, May 28th in 1979, that is actually the first recorded reference in the Colombian media to Pablo Escobar. It's the first time he's ever mentioned in any newspaper, TV, radio, anything. And the right. write-up is about the Copa Renault 4. The fact that he finished second in this race in these Renaults. And it was like, oh, rookie driver, this guy. No, they, they, the media there would not really say what he did. They would just say, wow, he's this, this race car driver is very interesting. He's seen, came out of nowhere. Wonder what he does. Everyone kind of knew by this point what he did, but no one wanted to say it in the media. So mm. they would report on him as being this race car driver who had some kind of a future. But in reality, what was happening is he is a massive drug dealer, a murderer, again, terrorist, basically. But no one wanted to really call him on that. So they would just point out that, oh, hey, he 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 was in this race. He was doing all kinds of things to make sure he could actually win in these cars. Um, he would bring a support team. He had multiple cars. He had multiple trucks there with parts and everything else. And, wow. and according to everyone who went to these races, afterwards, his was the party to go to. You'd go over to his truck and he'd have a massive spread. He'd have girls there. He'd have all kinds of, you know, big party. And so just imagine you're like a local guy running at a racetrack and suddenly this guy you've heard about who might kind of be a murderous a-hole might also be a drug dealer is there like throwing the best party you've ever had. You can understand how people kind of started to gravitate towards him, but also not be sure of what they were getting into, right? That's that's how he was at these racetracks. And of course, he also had plenty of dealings that allowed him to win these races because or or finish very high in them because everyone said his cars were pretty much, you know, cheated up as hell. Like they they were supposed to be a spec series. Again, cars that have like 25 <laughs> horsepower was all about the corners so he would get past in the corners and then suddenly he would drive past anybody on the straight so that's clearly not his driving ability that's the no. car being better if you try to explain that away or try to call that out or try to protest that yeah who are you gonna call yeah. who are you gonna tell oh, yeah. you're gonna, gonna tell, tell the you're gonna tell the local race guy like hey yeah. uh, i think this guy's bad and he's like he's, he's pablo cheating. escobar you damn yeah. right he's and cheating. you and i both seen our fair share of brush-ups in a paddock or a or a garage area or pit road both in person and on TV. Uh, I don't think this is one of those deals where you want to push and shove and start a shoving match with Pablo Escobar, nor his his team. His henchmen, yeah. His henchmen, yeah. <laughs> team yeah. slash henchmen. I think team, team henchmen. Slash henchmen he slash cartel slash, yeah. Yeah, all the above. 
other yeah, thing he would he, do is he would pay off the local authorities when uh, the road leading to the track. He would like tell them what the car looked like, the driver that he didn't want to be there because it was like the best driver in the area or best two or three drivers. He'd tell the cops to pull him over and they would and harass the drivers and they wouldn't make the race because <laughs> they got paid off not to be there. So this is what he was doing with his time in 1979 as he's already established the cartel and he's already this kind of growing figure in uh, he Colombia. Be, he became the eighth richest man in the world at one point, yes. according to Forbes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Billions. I think his estimated worth was over 60 or $70 billion in today's money. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. They made a theme park out of where he lived. Yeah. So, yeah, Pablo Escobar, insanely rich and became one of the most powerful men in Colombia, right? In 1979, he's still on his way to that point. So in the Copa Reno in 1979 in Colombia, he finished second in the points, which again, take that with a grain of salt. Obviously, that was all cheated up and illegal and none of that is real, but that is what happened. The luckiest man alive is the guy who finished first. And if he didn't die... He must have, uh, maybe he paid off Pablo. Who knows? Right. I don't know. Who knows? You don't know. Maybe he was friends. Maybe, yeah, who knows? Maybe he earned his respect. We don't know, right? Maybe yeah, he, Cope, he maybe maybe he was like, you know, this guy, he's the best. I'm not going to, I don't care. I'm going to, that guy wins. It's fine. It was around this time that he also upgraded from a Renault to a, what looks like in pictures, because I did a lot of research on this. It looks like a Porsche 935. Mm. And that's what I thought he had. Later in the episode, you are going to hear from a Porsche 935 expert that I talked to. And you'll find out as you hear that conversation, Pablo Escobar did not have a Porsche 935, which is a really awesome race car, very cool car that Porsche made. What he had was also a very cool car, just a different one, a 1974 Porsche 911 RSR. It was made, though, to look like a 935. He had it rebodied before he bought it. Wow. And brought down, which I, I just, again, this guy, he wasn't quite to the level that, you know, we're talking about where he's making $70 million a day, but he's probably already insanely rich by this point or getting getting there. Yeah. I think it's laughable that this guy was like, oh, uh, I can get a Porsche, but it's not the one I want. I'm going to get it rebodied to make it look like another Porsche. It's like yeah. he got a Chrysler 300 and was like, make this look like a Rolls Royce Phantom. Like, it, <laughs> it's just, it's not the same because Porsches, these are obviously two very amazing cars in their own right. So was it just you think he couldn't get one, his hands on one? I don't know or what it, like was. He found, it was. Or he found a deal. Because what was the 911 that he ended up getting? Um, like a he got a really one? good deal. So this is what he got. He got a car that had formerly been driven by Emerson Fittipaldi in the IROC series. What? This is an IROC Porsche 911 <laughs> RSR. Dude, there are only 15 of these Porsche 911 RSR IROCs in the world. Because mm. if you don't know the history of IROC, it was formed in, I think it was 1973, 1974, right around there. The first year it was Porsche. So they ran these Porsche 911 RSRs. Roger Penske owned most of these cars. He was mm. part of starting that up. And then they ran the first few races at Riverside. And then out of that, they had the best six or seven guys out of that went on to Daytona and they reworked on the cars for a few weeks, got them prepared, delivered them to Daytona. And then they ran like the final there. Well, after that, Chevrolet came in and was like, mm, we'd like to sponsor IROC, please. But these Porsche 911 RSR IROCs, they made 15 of them because there were 12 drivers. 
one of them was Emerson Fittipaldi, there were three spare cars in case, you know, one of them got to the track, wasn't working right. They had another one on hand. So that's why there's only 15 of these cars to begin with. And then one of them ends up in Pablo Escobar's hands of all places. So wow. that car is insane. So if you watched on YouTube, 1974, I rock racing. Oh yeah. You can go see, look at this race. You can see Emerson Fittipaldi. You can see this Emerson car. car. Yes. And know that later Listen. Pablo Escobar buys that car and turns it into a like not really, but puts an R, a, a 935 body on it and tries to tell his friends, like, look, I got a Porsche 935 <laughs> when he doesn't. He has a 911 RSR, which is also a cool car. I don't know. It's funny that you mentioned Roger Penske owned the series before. It's almost like there's two parallel paths to being a successful billionaire. You can do it the Pablo Escobar route or you can do it the Roger Penske route. And obviously one ended up dead on dead on a rooftop. Spoiler alert. And the other one is uh the other one is definitely owning the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and still alive and kicking well into his 80s. Yeah, so yeah, I think there's two, I would, way, there's, there's two I ways think, to go about it. I don't think this is going on on too much of a limb. I think I'd take yeah. the Roger Penske route over yeah, the Pablo absolutely. Escobar route. Yeah. I mean, there might be a little bit more adventure on the other side, not you know, but yeah, uh, a little more a adventure. coming at y'all at once. You get a you get to build your own prison and stay there. You know, that's pretty mm, cool. Yeah, uh, with all the amenities that you could ever ask for. So with this Porsche, not really 935. He decides to start competing in hill climb events, does Pablo Escobar. And that is where he meets a man by the name of Ricardo Londano. And that's actually the guy that's mostly the focus here because Ricardo Londano is the racer. Pablo Escobar is not. <laughs> he's he's a little more focused on his evil empire. But Ricardo Londano, who was born in August of 1949, a few months before Pablo Escobar was born. So they're around this, they're almost identical age. Same part of Colombia. They came from similar backgrounds. Ricardo Londano meets Pablo Escobar at this hill climb event. And at this point in his career, on Londano's career, he is known as a really good driver in Colombia. He drove other series of racing. There were other like stock, I'm saying stock car races, but not like NASCAR stock cars. Just like the Renault is a stock car <laughs> that's what yeah. that's what he was driving but bigger cars better cars than the renos so he was good at that he was good at motorcycle racing he had actually become a national champion in both disciplines so it, it, when he meets pablo escobar in 1979 he is a known racer in colombia mm. he's pretty good he actually has a nickname coachella which is a rough trans not coachella <laughs> He's oh, not, coachella he's, no not that <laughs> that nickname is a rough translation of the word razor blade so I think it's a compliment like he's, you know, like a knife, like a razor, like he's sharp, he's precise that I would think would be good for a race car driver. Maybe he earned it by other means, but I don't think so at this point in his life. It doesn't uh, appear I mean, that he was involved he in anything. It doesn't knows. appear he was involved in anything at this point. Just seems like he was mostly a race car driver. So like I said, in 1979, he meets Pablo Escobar at this hill climb event. Escobar is like, all right, I know this guy's good. So I think I'm pretty good, too. So he says, I've got my Porsche. I think I can get within 15 seconds of you on this hill climb course. So what would you do in that situation, Derek? What would you do if a guy <laughs> if that you're Pop pretty aware of as being a bad narco-terrorist might... The Booger Sugar Baron, if he is on my tail, I would probably make it look really interesting and let him decide. Meaning if he turns me, if he... If he takes the inside line that You're I give him. You're not giving him the lead, but he'd have to turn you to get he, he, you, if he Or, or, he, you, or he I'd have to leave. I'd leave the door open. He'd have to take it from me, but I'd leave the door open. And if he doesn't, I can say, hey, you know, I beat you fair and square. But if he did, I'd be like, man, 
You took that in. I left that inside open, man. You 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 got it. So here's what Ricardo Londano decides to do. Well, decides. I don't know. He finished eight seconds ahead of Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar knew this guy was a really good driver. So he said, if I can finish within 15 seconds of him, I'll consider that a win. So he did give Ricardo Londano like a little out and Ricardo Londano, who knows, maybe he drove the like hill climb of his life and Pablo Escobar was right on his tail and was only eight seconds back, which, you know, would be pretty good in a hill climb. But in reality, you know, Ricardo Londano probably was <laughs> better right. than that. Uh, but, you know, it was close. So Pablo Escobar really took a liking to him, uh, was very happy about that. And at this point, it appears he started to kind of adopt Londano as his driver and say, all right, you're my guy. Very soon after, he and Londano meet. Ricardo Londano ends up in the U.S., entered in the 12 hours at Sebring, driving a Porsche 935, an actual Porsche 935, with teammates John Gunn and George Garces. But in that race, he failed to finish. Also in 1979, he ran in the Can-Am series, which the Can-Am series was wild. If you if you don't know what that is, we will do episodes on the Can-Am series in the oh, future. Oh, we but, got stacks and stacks of data or stories for that one. Yeah, let's just put it this way. You've heard the name McLaren. You've heard of you know Bruce McLaren. If you know that name, McLaren, the car company, the F1 team, Bruce McLaren made a lot of his name and noise and all of that in the Can-Am series before he passed and then his cars in that series were insane roger penske had cars in the can-am series this was a highly competitive very big deal in america in the 70s so he starts running the can-am series in 79 he had six top 10 finishes it's pretty good for a rookie driver in the can-am series that's that's really good uh he's driving a porsche carrera rsr so again this dude loves porsches i guess this is what you're getting money from Pablo Escobar. This is the cars you're ending up in, I guess. But he ended yeah. up driving a Porsche Carrera RSR for De, De Navarre's Racing in 1980 in the Daytona 24-hour race. Um, wow. That team finished seventh overall and second in class. Reminder, 79, he's racing a hill climb with Pablo Escobar, and he's just like a national Colombian driver. 1980, he's finishing second in class at the Daytona Rolex 24, seventh overall. It, it, which is just insane that, like, I mean, we're all people. Everybody that walks this planet's humans. But, like, I live for that 24-hour Daytona race. That is my favorite race in the entire calendar year. I love it. And it's odd that, like, Pablo Escobar and all of his dealings probably asked somebody and said, hey, what's uh, what? how's the race looking up in Daytona? You know, like. Oh, yeah. Because sure his, driver, his driver's it, up there. Like that's, You're right. It's it, so it, weird it's to think that. connection to, like, a this evil henchman that you know was a to some a folklore hero to some a terrorist to some something in between you know and to to realize that he's watching or listening to reports i mean it's 1980 so it's a lot different than 2021 but he's he's following that race you know uh 40 years prior to me following it it's just it's just wild to think about it is weird it's it's something that i think that's what sports does that's what art good art can do i'm sure there are yep. pieces of art that Is pablo it? escobar looked at and was like i like that piece of art well hell man a porsche 935 i want a porsche 935 too i mean i don't yeah i, I mean i, I, I want the porsche 911 with the 935 body kit i don't care i'd be fine with that <laughs> that's I apparently mean, yes that's I mean, more his speed that's what he was doing that's, so it's more his, um, it's more his jam <laughs> yeah it's also important to note right because this was an imsa race the 80 day the 1980 daytona 24 hour race don't forget that IMSA, they did not use that name for a long time for various reasons, but 
they had a reputation in the 80s. Their their nickname was the International Marijuana Smugglers Association because there were a <laughs> lot of drivers who got had had shady ties to that at the very least or there were concerns about that. At that time, it wouldn't be uncommon that a drug dealer would be able to find a way to sponsor a car and really not have a lot of questions asked. For what it's worth, that De Navarre's racing team in 1980 at the 24-hour race that Ricardo Londano raced for, their one of their sponsors on the car was just like Columbia. It just like said Columbia on the car. So they they theoretically, I think technically they were sponsored by like the uh, coffee growers of Columbia, right? But it was believed yeah. that a lot of that funding came from Pablo Escobar through intermediaries because didn't want to have his name on anything. So fair enough. Um, also, it should be noted that as Ricardo Londano is getting better as a driver, it also appears he is definitely involved in some level of participation with the Medellin cartel by this point. Now, I tried to find out where that assumption comes from or, you know, the articles I read and looked up why people were saying that. The best thing I can come up with is they basically assume that because he didn't end up dead. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't know Pablo Escobar and be that closely involved and be getting money from him and not be cool with what's going on. At the end of 1980, Ricardo Londano decides, I'm not doing racing in the U.S. anymore, or at least not full-time. I'm going to England. And the reason is he wants to give F1 a go. So he ran a race in the British Formula One Challenge. Are you aware of the British Formula One Challenge? Is that kind of like the uh, like a U.S. Open Invitational? Like you win it, you get it played in the u.s open i it's right it's more like the xfinity series in nascar okay. right like that's that was kind of the it was it was formula cars they went around some tracks that were you know f1 tracks but obviously it was all in great britain and it was a feeder series into formula one it was if you can run in this maybe you can run in f1 usually some older equipment a couple years older mm -hmm. equipment not the newest stuff um, so they're buying this stuff secondhand, keeping it in shape. But it, it was still a well-followed series. So he ran in that, and he ran in one race uh, in a Lotus 78 chassis, which was an older chassis. It had already been wrecked three times that season and repaired. Ricardo, wow. Ricardo Londano gets in that car and finishes seventh, moving up 11 positions from where he started. And this is his debut in a single-seater car, and he takes a half-wrecked piece of junk and gets it top 10 this dude had some driving talent like i do yeah. i don't want to gloss over the fact and make it like pablo escobar just put this guy in a bunch of random crap that he couldn't drive no he could drive he had a top 10 at rolex 24 he had a top 10 mm -hmm. in this british formula you don't do that if you suck as a driver so this dude was no. was a wheel man for sure um like i said this is now 1981 is where we are at this point because that was the end of 1980 when he decides to go to england uh, Ricardo Londano got a call from Ensign, which was a Formula One team that was struggling financially, but they were a legit Formula One outfit. They had seen what he did in his lone British F1 race. Actually, a guy, Colin Bennett, who was a partner on this Ensign team, he had actually just signed on to be a shareholder and partner in this team. He had also helped Ricardo Londano get this old Lotus that he raced in the British Formula One Challenge. So he when he signed on was like, Hey, you need a driver. You need some money. I know a guy who can drive and I think he's got pretty good cash flow too. So they gave him a look and said, all right, this guy can drive. Let's bring him in. So 
at the time, Ensign already had a driver signed up. Mark Surer is his name. Mm-hmm. But they thought, well, we got this guy who's got some money. We need money. Let's let him run in a race and see what happens. So the race they decided to target was the 1981 Brazilian Grand Prix. Uh, Ricardo Londano at this time did not have a super license from FIA, which you needed to be able to run an F1 race. So you get there, you show up, you're an F1 team, you're an F1 driver, you got all this stuff, except you don't have the license. So you have to go out there and run with these guys and show you can make time. And then if so, they grant you the license and then you, up until that point, you're cosplaying as an F1 driver. Once Mm -hmm. you get the super license, you are officially a Formula One driver. So he did pretty well. Um, His first time in an F1 car, he went out 18th quick. First time. First time ever in an F1 car, and not the worst. They said, in fact, no. he was. There were more cars on the track than just like your normal twenty you see nowadays in a Formula One race. He had shown very quickly that he was faster than some guys who were previous so he's champions. Ar- he's already faster than the Haas, faster than the Williams. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so everything looked good for him to get this license until he ran into Kiki Rosberg, Nico Rosberg, F1 champion. His dad, he's in commercials, right? Kiki Rosberg. What happened was Rosberg didn't like something about Ricardo Londano. We're not sure what it is, but the the story is that he was rubbed the wrong way by Ricardo Londano. Maybe the fact that he just didn't like his driving style. Could be that he didn't like the fact that he believed maybe there was rumors about how he's getting financed, whatever else. The story is that Rosberg brake checks Londano into a turn and Londano can't check up in time and takes them both out. I don't know that I would be so willing to prove a point in a Formula One car at that time, wherever, you know, still very violent, very dangerous. These things are catching on fire all the time. I don't know that I'd be willing to purposefully put my car in the harm's way just to show some other driver up or make a point. I think that's kind of... It might have been more likely that the rookie driver wasn't ready for the braking zone and just missed it and ran into yeah, another it, driver. It could right? be that. This is the worst time to have a wreck, right? You're trying to get yep. your super license. You have a big wreck with an established F1 driver. That's no good. The guy who was essentially running Formula One at that time is a guy by the name of Bernie Ecclestone. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. He was in Formula One even at that point. He, I mean, he was wow. in Formula One forever, but he had gotten to the point where he had kind of unified some of the factions in formula one. And he was actually running the entire thing by this point, the TV deals, he's working on all these other factors. He pretty much had anything he wanted done could get done. Anything he didn't want to happen would not happen. So once this wreck occurs, then Bernie Ecclestone says, who is this Ricardo Londano guy? Anyway, what's his deal? So then they start kind of researching that weekend and they find evidence that all the companies that are sponsoring him or have ties to Ensign also have this address on them that is known to lead back to Pablo Escobar. So it is at that point, specifically with the knowledge that this Mm. money was coming from Pablo Escobar and this guy is Pablo Escobar's guy. Bernie Ecclestone and the FIA decide to deny Ricardo Londano the super license just hours before the race in Brazil is supposed to begin. So, oh, and they were in South America. Wow, they, they were in Brazil. Yeah, I never, I never thought that Bernie Ecclestone would be a man that you could describe as having balls the size of Montana. But I mean, he's not in Colombia, but he's like right next door. 
you know, there could have been something there with Pablo could have retaliated. Of I course. mean, very easily making a drug drug lord mad like that usually doesn't go down well. History has taught us. I mean, it's sitting right there. Ecclestones. Why are we not calling them that? That's what That's I'm calling. True. Let's, let's think about this. What would have happened if Bernie Ecclestone was just like, eh, who knows if that's real or not? Eh, it's just a rookie mistake. Give him his super license. What would have happened is Ricardo Londano would have been an F1 driver and he would have had significant ties to Pablo Escobar. And this is a guy who already is killing people at will, making upwards of $70 million a day in cocaine sales and would have a driver in the top level of motorsports all around the world. That would pretty much have, he already was as powerful as anyone, but that would have just sealed what he could do, that he was untouchable, right? That no one was going to stand up to this guy. Now, it didn't obviously stop Pablo Escobar. It's not like he quit selling drugs after that happened, but it's one of the few people on the rise of Pablo Escobar that it appears kind of stood up to at least an, you know, uh, uh, an avatar of his, uh, a proxy of his. It wasn't yeah. going right up to Pablo Escobar and telling him to f off, but it was yeah, it's pretty pretty close to it, right? Telling his driver, hey, you can pack up and go home. We don't need you here. One other thought there, real quick. What happens if Ricardo Londano doesn't run into Kiki Rosberg? Probably gets a super license. Probably probably does. They probably don't look into him as much because they're what probably like, it, well, this guy can drive. Oh, yeah. Driving for Ensign. All right, whatever. They wanted to give a yeah. local guy a try. We're in Brazil. This is Colombia's down the road. That's where he's from. All right. They're giving a South American a chance in a South American race. Let's see what happens. And maybe he gets a super license and goes off from there. Maybe Escobar finds a European country to build a race shop that doesn't have extradition like Switzerland, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then what you've got is a situation where Pablo Escobar owns Indianapolis Motor Speedway at this time. Who knows? <laughs> I don't think that would have happened. So Ricardo Londano did not run the 81 Grand Prix of Brazil. Um, his car was driven by Mark Sur, who ended up finishing fourth in that car. Again, Ricardo Londano was apparently pretty good as a driver. No no way to know what he would have done in that actual car because Mark Sur was an F1 driver. Ricardo Londano had never been in a race, but... Maybe he also runs really well and gets a top five. So many what ifs with this. We de- thankfully don't ever get to find out because Bernie Ecclestone said no. But after being essentially banned from Formula One, Ricardo Londano's racing career didn't really pan out. He ran sporadically in IMSA for a few more seasons. At one point, he raced with Diego Montoya. Diego Montoya is Juan Pablo Montoya's uncle. They raced in a car in IMSA a couple different races. Um, but eventually, Ricardo Londano retired from racing in 1986 spent the remaining years of his life getting closer to these drug cartels he went into the business of selling planes and boats planes and boats in colombia in the 80s who do you think's buying a lot of those i mean upstanding middle class workers maybe a few most of them are going to the cartel and of course this is one of the other many you got to remember, like you said, you don't just have a drug cartel and then you go to the bank and are like, here's the money from our drugs. You have various businesses where there are ties. Who knows if this was one of them, but just this is the type of business that you could certainly see a cartel being able to have a hand in, be a part of, funnel money through. And he definitely did get closer to the cartels at one point in 1998. Ricardo Londano was found to be in possession of 2000 pounds of cocaine. Whoopsie, how'd that get there? Hmm, oh, how did that get there? That's 2,000, again, a ton of, not a, not like, oh, it's a ton of cocaine, a literal ton of cocaine. A literal ton. Yeah. 
Um, wow. He was also told by the Colombian government to turn over more than $10 million in assets they claimed he purchased with drug money. So Ricardo Londano is making a lot of money at this point because if they can take $10 million worth of assets from him, he's got $10 million worth of assets. So think about how much money he's got coming through. Yeah. And sadly, his life ends pretty tragically. That seems to be a theme on these podcasts where we just have all these guys whose lives just don't end well. Ricardo Londano was shot and killed by members of the street gang Los Urabeños in the city of Cordoba in his hotel room in 2009. We don't know what would have happened with his time in F1 without his ties to drugs. Who knows? Maybe he still would have had a great racing career. And if he wasn't a part of that whole scene, maybe he would have been. He clearly had some talent. As we go back to Escobar, I want to read this to you about the place. So, you know, you knew he turned himself into the Colombian government to avoid extradition to the United States, right? Yeah. That was an agreement that happened. Like you said, then he was allowed to build his own prison and basically stay in his own Yeah, stay there for five years, right? So it's called La Cathedral, and it was at a steep elevation outside Medellin. And listen to this description. Fog rolls over the property after 6 o'clock in the evening and returns at dawn. Therefore, air assaults are impossible to carry out. Location steep topography also prevented the military rival cartels from attacking La Cathedral easily. So basically, I just want to just to paint the mind of Pablo Escobar. He was so calculated that he's like, okay, not only am I going to build a prison, I want to build it in a place where it's super foggy, so it makes air assaults almost impossible unless the weather conditions are just perfect. This is a guy who had a plan to bring a driver to Formula One, and who knows, maybe he would have been so popular that... None of these charges of this Medellin cartel could have stuck to him. Like, who knows? Yeah, thankfully that didn't happen. We're going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to discuss the history of the car that Pablo Escobar used in that hill climb. That's coming up next right here on Stagger. Welcome back to Stagger. So in our story, we talked about how Pablo Escobar and race car driver Roberto Londano met at a hill climb where Pablo Escobar was driving a car that looked like a Porsche 935. We know it wasn't a 935. It was actually a 1974 Porsche 911 RSR IROC. Believe it or not, that car is currently up for sale. And since we here at Stagger have nothing better to do than to think about motorsports history all day, we decided to track down the guy who's currently selling the car. My name is Ken Gold. I'm the founder and co-owner of Atlantis Motor Group here in Boca Raton, Florida. We specialize in selling exotic and significant race cars, as well as modern exotic and luxury cars. AtlantisMotorGroup.com is where you want to go to look at pictures of this car we've been talking about. It's been restored to its original paint scheme that it would have had in the International Race of Champions. And if you're a fan of Porsche, you're going to love this interview because Ken is a Porsche 935 expert. I kind of dabble in the motorsports. I I do vintage racing myself. I've owned probably three real 935s and I've built four or five uh, reproductions and I've brokered and controlled the sale of probably close to a dozen of real authentic Porsche 935. So what does a 935, an authentic 935, typically go for? I mean, when I was doing this in the late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, they were significantly less money than they are now. They, they were trading anywhere from a hundred to $300,000. Now, you can't touch one with any kind of history. 
for less than seven figures. I mean, it's it's was kind of the king of Group Five. If you didn't in that period, if you didn't have a 935, you were basically you weren't on the box. It was like taking a you know a gun to a knife fight. For those of you who don't know what a Porsche 935 is, it was a race car developed and manufactured by Porsche, introduced in 1976 and beginning in the 1977 season, it was offered to Porsche customers to enter into contests like the IMSA GT Championship and other endurance races. In fact, the 935 won the 1979 24 Hours of Le Mans overall. It also won other major endurance races at Sebring, Daytona, at the Nürburgring. It is definitely a significant car and clear why people want to collect these things. It's also kind of clear why in 1979, a Colombian drug lord might say, I'd like my car to look like a 935, even if he couldn't get his hands on one. So it's it's not a 935. It's before it was sent to Bogota, they rebodied it here in Florida. They kind of made a clone martini car, but it was still naturally aspirated and still had the same motor and trans. But it, it, they just changed the body bodywork and put different tires and wheels on it. That's a pretty significant detail. The Porsche 935 that was introduced in 1976 had a flat six three liter engine that was capable of producing 561 horsepower. That engine also had a turbo. Meanwhile, the engine that was in Pablo Escobar's 911 RSR IROC was capable of delivering 315 horsepower. That's still better than the stock 231 horsepower out of that same engine, but doesn't really compare to a 935. Putting all that fancy bodywork on it doesn't add to the actual displacement of the engine. Still, this car was a race car and one with a pretty amazing pedigree. Emerson Fittipaldi, a world champion in Formula One, raced this car in the inaugural IROC season. Keeping up the history is what Ken does. He tracks down all the information for the next buyer so they can know the car they're buying is the real article. And he's done his homework on this one. After it was finished in IROC, the car was raced by John Tunstall uh, in IMSA. And it ran the 12-hour Sebring a couple times. I think the last time it ran an IMSA race was in 78 at the 24 Daytona. And it was brokered to... Pablo. Part of the deal was is rebodying the car. It stayed here in Florida. They did the body conversion, sent it to Bogota. Then he drove it a few times. And then a, a gentleman named Sergio Garcia um, drove it. And I didn't know if he owned it after Escobar or if he just drove it for Escobar. But they, they ran it in a few races in the 80s and, and uh, the early 90s. And as far as I know, it came back into the U.S. Escobar sold it, and it came back in May or June of 93. I talked to the gentleman who actually received the car. They sent it to a gentleman named Marty Gilbert in southern Florida here to make sure the car ran. I guess the gentleman that bought the car from Columbia was from the Midwest, and they, they wanted to make sure the car ran and everything was cool. They got it running, and then the car went up to Ohio somewhere. The guy owned it for many, many years till um, like the late 90s. Obviously, there are a few pieces of documentation that are tough to get because, well, one of the guys who owned the car didn't exactly like to keep his name on the books. Still, Ken knows more about this car than a lot of people probably know about some of their extended family. When the car came back here, a little red flag came up and Customs started investigating the car. I know it was held up in Customs for about three weeks. There's a funny story that the, when the car was over here, they found a couple dead lizards in the car or something. It doesn't mean anything, but it was just kind of funny how the, the car was in lockdown for a while. When the car did make it here and the U.S. Customs started investigating it, they did ask for all the documentation on the car. 
they eventually just dropped their investigation, but the owner never got any of the documentation back. And this is stuff we're trying to to find to validate, you know, some dates and everything. But I mean, it, it's pretty well known the car was was driven in Iraq by Emerson Fittipaldi. And we know the chain of ownership and through Pablo Escobar. We're working with a customs attorney in Colombia now that's doing research in the archives in, in Bogota. So, I mean, that's, we're digging pretty deep to, to, to really validate some of these dates. It's kind of like being like Indiana Jones. You're searching for lost antiquities and information and tidbits and this guy and that guy. And unfortunately, there's a few people that are tied into this car that are no longer with us. You know, I have a list of names and people that have either waved their wand over this car to make it hap- make the deal happen going to Columbia and back or whatever. But that's kind of the fun part. It's kind of neat when you can um, spike the football and say, well, here, it is what I said it is. And this is, here's the documentation. So it's kind of self-rewarding. This car's been everywhere. And now it sits in Ken's dealership. So the question is, how did it get there? The last gentleman that, that bought it, um, unfortunately, he passed away recently and, and his family and the trust gave us this whole collection of cars to um, to sell for for them. They ranged from a Emery Special, one of those hot rod little uh, 356 uh, coupes, to uh, it was a 918, one of the Martini 918 Vysocks, um, and everything in between. GT3s, GT2s, 911Rs. Prayer GTs, there was a total of, I think, nine cars. This is the last one, but, they, you know, the family was very fond of this car. He bought it at an auction several years ago. Very avid collector and super nice guy, a wonderful individual. He had the Momo 935. I mean, he, he had good taste, and he wasn't afraid of opening the checkbook to buy something he wanted. I feel very privileged that I was given the car and entrusted by the family to help them find a, a new home for it. Naturally, the next question that any car guy is going to ask is, what was it like when you sat in that car? Oh, yeah. I mean, just getting into a regular RSR, a normal, you know, a real RSR is, is, is exhilarating. It's like hopping into, you know, it's you're going into a time capsule. For me, there was a couple couple really good notes because in the recently, in the last two years, I've lost 150 pounds. And I was able to actually sit in one of the real lollipop Porsche factory seats, which all my 935s, I had to put bigger seats in them to fit my big ass. And it was kind of cool sitting in a in a factory lollipop seat. So I, I was like a kid in a candy store. It was cool. As a big guy myself, I can totally relate to that thought. And I think that's awesome that Ken was able to do that. I also wondered, of course, did it cross Ken's mind as he's sitting in this car that Pablo Escobar one of the most notorious criminals in the world had the same view as he is now having sitting in that car. You know, I, I thought about it briefly about the Escobar relationship, but I thought more about that Emerson Fittipaldi was driving this car and he was battling with Mark Donahue. And I think, I mean, all these David Pearson and all these, these guys of the day. And that was, that was way more exciting than thinking about, you know, you know, Escobar. Just out these guys were trading paint, you know, and because they, they didn't care. It wasn't their cars. And they were pushing and banging on each other. And and the fun part about this this series, the inaugural one with the Porsches, is nobody wanted to drive the Porsches. And all these NASCAR guys never driven a car where they actually had to use the clutch to shift. And <laughs> it's just kind of interesting. You hear about stories about how these guys hated the cars, but they loved them at the same time. They, these cars got 
punished and abused. The transmissions and engines were, you know, just being destroyed in these things. In the in the four races or whatever, there was three heat races, and then the the finale in Daytona. So I think there's four or five races. They went through some serious hardware. Of course, the Escobar thing grabs all the headlines, and a lot of our story today has been about that. But for anyone who truly loves automobiles or motorsports history like we do, the real value of this car is the fact that Emerson Fittipaldi sat in it and drove it against some of the greatest race car drivers of all time in the inaugural International Race of Champions. It's a one of 15 car and it's sitting in his dealership completely restored. It's a pretty remarkable journey this car has been on and I wish I could be the one who owns it next. Sadly, it's a bit out of my price range. But if you want to see it and you want to find out more, check out atlantismotorgroup.com and search their inventory. They also have a 2006 Riley Daytona prototype MK11, which was raced by Wayne Taylor Racing and was driven by Wayne Taylor, Max Angelelli, Jan Magnussen, and some guy named Jeff Gordon. The dealership is pretty cool, and if I'm ever in Boca Raton, I'm stopping in. That is it for us this week. Thank you so much to listening. Make sure you tell someone who loves motorsports like you do about this podcast. You can do that also by just leaving a review on your favorite podcast app or tweeting the link out for the show this week. Make sure you follow along as well at Stagger Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. See you next time.